Romans. Uh, something different tonight, entirely different, in fact. I promised almost since the beginning of teaching Romans the epistle that I would do an expanded translation or really a paraphrase, and I'm going to lead into it with a page or so because I really couldn't go into theology until, which I think is going to be something like Doing and Living Theology, a series called Doing and Living Theology. Couldn't go there until... I helped your joy a little bit more on Romans. This is something you can sit back and you don't have to take notes. This will be in print, but you're kind of like a an experimental crowd tonight because I'm trying this out on you. But this will give you kind of an idea what it might have been like when Phoebe, sent by Paul, read his epistle in the assembly. And I think you might catch some phrases here. I'm going to explain to you on the outset what this is, Romans the Epistle. And it has the potential of being more helpful to your joy, as 2 Corinthians one twenty four says, as any of the other teachings before because of its compactness and its sticking close to the bone in Romans. Now, a reminder that there's monthly ladies' prayer time this Sunday at 11.30 to 12.30, beverages and snacks provided. Hopefully, my name is on your list for prayers because I believe in the effectual prayer of a righteous woman (laughs) that avails much. Part of the reason why I'm still here. So, relax. If I see people taking notes during this, I know you're really serious. And we pray, Father, that the reading of Romans, an expanded paraphrase in which the sense is conveyed, will come through to elevating grace for each listener, and that we may be elevated into a graced imitation and a created participation with the divine persons. I thank you, Father, that you have called us into the fellowship of your Son, which is a fellowship of both divine and human persons, for that is the church, the body of Christ, the head and the body together, is a fellowship of divine and human persons. In fact, that is the supreme good that you have called us to by the transformation of evil through the law of the cross. And we pray that you'll also prepare us for visits from Mississippi and Ohio contingents that be next Wednesday and for the kickoff of our theological series. Bless their travels both ways and their time with us here in the upcoming communion service Sunday from this Sunday, week from this Sunday. And everything that's going on that is extraordinary in your plan. Prepare us for it so that when it comes, we'll enjoy it to the maximum. We ask this in Christ's name, amen. The following then is a paraphrase, not a translation, of the epistle of Paul to the Romans, which we finished the exposition of very recently and then added two addendums. In fact, the two addendums are right here and they're in print, and they're at the table, and you can take one or two if you want. 
And we, this is going to really fulfill a phase of distillation, distilling the Roman epistle. So the following is a free paraphrase, and by that I mean it's rather free-flowing, of the epistle of Paul to the Romans, in the spirit of Nehemiah chapter 8 and verse 8. Look that up again, read that context, especially 8, 8 through 12 if you get a chance. That verse specifically speaks of the teaching Levites, the teaching priests in Israel, who translated the scrolls of the Torah for the people who were in captivity for 70 years. And so the language was lost. So the verse speaks of the teaching Levites or priests who translated the scrolls of the Torah and enabled the people who had returned from captivity to understand the sense or the clear understanding of what was being read. The result of this project that Nehemiah speaks of by the translators and by the teaching priests in Israel was that the people went away rejoicing. Notice the joy theme here. Because of the understanding that was granted to them in Nehemiah 8.12. So in this translation, what you're going to have in print, this paraphrase, expanded paraphrase in the spirit of the Targums, the Jewish Targums, there is no presumption of perfection. So apologizing from the beginning. In this, there is no presumption of perfection in this paraphrase, and I'm certain that it's liable to revision. Nevertheless, I hope I have at least conveyed a sense in this in which a clear contrast is made between the true gospel and a sly pretender. In Romans 1.18 to 4.25, which I develop as a section. So far we're going to see Romans 1, 1 to 17 is an introduction. Romans 1, 18 to 425 is a dialectic of contradictories. Romans chapters 5 through 8 is what I call all Paul. It's all Paul. It's the heart of the unchained gospel. Romans 9 through 11 will deal with, in the fourth section, deals with the identity of true Israel and God's mercy to all. Romans 12 to 16 deals with living in the agona, the clash of the ages. So I hope that you'll see something about this. In Romans 1.18 to 4.25, I don't know how far we'll get into this translation tonight, certainly not more than a third of the epistle, as well as later in some places in Romans 9 through 11, especially... 919 to33. I've identified two speakers in a dialectic of contradictories. In other words, a dialogue in which there's an opponent and Paul identified. That was the hardest part of this. Those two speakers are Paul and his opponent. I simply label the opponent by that name. The opponent, in brackets, is the preacher of another gospel one that proposes justification by works of the Mosaic law, beginning with the circumcision of males. It's called a nomistic gospel, as we've seen, which in fact is not good news and certainly not God's gospel about his son. 
And so this message presented by the opponent was a direct and blatant contradiction of Paul's gospel, which announces justification by the faithfulness of Jesus Christ. That is by Jesus obedience leading to the death of the cross, which was followed inexorably by his resurrection from the dead. My attention was first drawn to this, giving credit to where it's due. This section of Romans, especially 118 to 425, and then a section in Romans 9, as possibly being a kind of Socratic dialogue by reading Douglas Campbell's The Deliverance of God. In that book, Campbell wished for a translation in which these two speakers would be identified so as not to mix up what Paul was saying with what the proponent of an opposing missionary message was saying. If I may add something here, this has been the unfortunate case all through church history where people have attributed to Paul something his opponent was saying. And that's a tragedy. That's why this is met with a little bit of opposition. This is not that wished-for translation. See what I'm doing here? Disclaimers. This is not that wished-for translation. I do not pretend in this paraphrase to have perfectly distinguished in every phrase who is saying what. Reason for that? Simple. I found that to be impossible. Nevertheless, I hope that the attempt to distinguish Paul's voice from the voice of an adversary an agent of Satan, possibly a Jewish Christian missionary of some fame or an interlocutor created by Paul to be the voice of a real distortion of the gospel that was extant at the time and a virulent threat to the very good news that is the gospel of God all about his son, Romans 1 1 through 4. That's the gospel that Paul appropriated and proclaimed as his very own, Romans 2.16 and 16.25. Other distortions of the gospel abound today. A study of Romans as the presentation of the gospel of God about his son with its universal implications serves to derail not just the nomistic gospel of the opponent, but also a myriad of so-called gospels in the present day. So in some places, you'll notice when this comes out, and it'll be a while, I'm going to start it now, but wait until we have our DVD visitors in our midst before I kick off theology, and then I'll go back to it later. But in some places, I've inserted parenthetical bracketed comments or expansions, and in some instances, I've inserted verse references from the scriptures or passages from other writings that are either quoted or alluded to in the course of the epistle. Again, by no means do these cited verses represent an exhausted list of scriptural verses alluded to or quoted in Romans. That's another project altogether. In a way, this is the beginning of a project that should be completed by others. At some critical junctures, I've also added in bold a kind of summation or important encapsulation, which I hope will help the reader's joy. In still other places, I've included bold italic emphases that are intended to highlight certain very important phrases that lend to the understanding of the apostles' cogent 
presentation. The expanded paraphrase will constitute the distillation phase of Romans, the epistle. Very personally, on a personal note, this is God saying to yours truly, whoa, boy, where are you going? You're not done with Romans. The paraphrase, here it is, in earnest, Romans 1, 1. Some of its samples out on the table there. This epistle is from Paul, an imperial slave of Christ Jesus, the King of Kings. I was effectively summoned to be an apostle, the king's herald, set apart and limited to the task of proclaiming the gospel of God, which God promised beforehand through his prophets in the holy writings. This gospel and those writings are all about his son, who is from the royal seed of David, according to human hereditary lineage, who is also demonstrated to have been all along the divine son of God with omnipotent power exerted by the spirit of sanctification, also known as the Holy Spirit, by the resurrection of Jesus from the dead, an act of God that assures the resurrection of all human beings. For all human beings are destined to experience Quote, the power of God unto salvation, close quote. Verse five is, it is through Jesus Christ, crucified and risen from the dead, that we received grace and apostleship. That is, my associates and I, says Paul. The authorization and the power to bring about the allegiance of faith in all the nations for the sake of his name as a preview of all the nations coming to him in worshipful adoration and allegiance. You are among those who have been effectually summoned to belong to Jesus Christ and to participate in his obedient faithfulness in that dynamic sphere of love, even in the course of this evil age and before his universal salvific appearing. Verse 8, a new paragraph. Or seven, really, begins a new paragraph. This epistle is initially addressed to all those who are in Rome, loved and elected by God, and who have been called into being as saints, the people to whom the Son of Man of Daniel 7 fame distributes his royal power and kingdom by authorization of his father, the Ancient of Days, who is delighted to give you the kingdom. To you be sanctifying grace and the messianic livingness that is harmonizing and unifying peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Though initially addressed to saints, now this again, a very expanded translation or paraphrase. Though initially addressed to saints, both Jewish and Gentile Christians in Rome, This epistle has been divinely designed for the edification, enlightenment, and encouragement of people summoned to belong to Christ in all the generations who live during the clashing juncture of two aeons. The evil aeon, now invaded by God's grace in the shape and form of two divine expeditions, and the messianic age, which though not consummated, has been inaugurated with the Christ event, the incarnation life in the flesh, passion, crucifixion, atoning death, burial, resurrection, elevation, and enthronement of Jesus of Nazareth 
to the right side of God, his father. Paragraph, next paragraph, beginning Romans 8. First, I give thanks to my God through Jesus Christ for all of you because the news about your faith is being broadcasted in all the world. Certainly, God is my witness whom I serve with my spirit. That is my whole being in the proclaiming of the gospel about his son that I constantly mention you in my prayers, always asking in addition that if it's somehow in God's will, I may at last succeed in coming to you now. Verse 11, for you see, I long to see you so that I may impart a spiritual gift to you. That gift being the proclamation of the gospel in all its inclusive fullness. So that you will be strengthened and preserved in the agona. That is the juncture of the ages. The clash of the present evil age. And the age of Messiah that was inaugurated with Christ event. Followed by the mission of the spirit of God into this world. That is verse 12. That we may be mutually encouraged by elevating grace through each other's faith. Born of the knowledge of God's love, both yours and mine. I don't want you to be unaware, siblings, brothers and sisters, that I have often planned to come to you in order that I might have some fruit among you, just as I have among the other Gentiles. But I was hindered until now. I am a debtor both to Greeks and to barbarians. Greeks in air quotes, if you will. Barbarians in air quotes, as they're called by the refined Greeks both to the wise as the well-taught Jews and educated Greeks consider themselves and to the foolish whom the well-taught Jews call Gentiles and the refined Greeks call pagans. Verse 15, so I'm eager to preach the very good news to you who are in Rome too. Bold, for I am not ashamed of the gospel. This very good news because it is experienced as the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, for the Jew first and also for the Greek. In 17, I say not ashamed. This is really the thesis verse, because by it the righteousness of God, that is his saving act in Christ and in the spirit, is apocalyptically revealed from God's faithfulness in Christ Jesus to Christ's faithfulness in which we who believe have the privilege to participate. Just as it is written, the righteous one, that's Jesus and all of humanity in him, will live from, that is because of faithfulness, Christ's faithful obedience unto the death of the cross. That's the first section, introduction. Second section of Romans entitled A Dialectic dialectic of Contradictories, a dialogue between Paul and his opponent. Listen carefully to it. I'm introducing it in bold print. The Dialectic of Contradictories begins with Romans 1.18. As Paul, who was appointed for the defense and the establishment of the gospel, that's according to Philippians 1.16, enters into a Socratic-style dialogue with an opponent, who, like Paul, is a Jewish Christian missionary, but who, unlike Paul, 
preaches a gospel of justification by works done in accordance with Moses' law. This is in stark and irreconcilable contradiction to Paul's gospel, which proclaims the justification of all of humanity through the faithfulness of Jesus Christ, per especially Romans 5.18, etc. So here's 1.18. Paul introduces it like this. This is in brackets. Paul speaking. Now let me sum up for you the view of the Gentiles held by my opponent. Please notice that. The view of the Gentiles held by Paul's opponent, 118 to 32. For the wrath of God is being apocalyptically revealed, is coming down from heaven upon all the idolatrous impiety and unrighteousness of people who suppress the truth in unrighteousness, because that which can be known of God is plainly seen by them, for God has manifested it to them. For ever since the creation of the universe, God's invisible attributes, his qualities, both his eternal power, the word for eternal power here is idios, which occurs only here and in Jude 1.6, that's just a comment in the middle, but also in 4 Maccabees 10.15 and Wisdom of Solomon 7.26. His opponent gets a lot of his stuff from outside of biblical sources. So, for, since the creation of the universe, God's invisible qualities, both his eternal power and divinity, Theotis here is also only in the Greek Bible here, but also in the wisdom of Solomon, 18.9. Again, showing a source of this material. Are understood being clearly perceived through what he has made. As a result, they are without excuse because knowing God, they did not glorify him as God, or give him thanks. Instead, their opinions became worthless and their senseless minds were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became foolish. And as the object of their worship, they exchanged the glory of the incorruptible God for the likeness of a corruptible man and of birds and quadrupeds and reptiles. For this reason, God gave them over. Paradidomi, as we've seen in the cravings of their hearts to impurity, to the degrading of their bodies among themselves. They exchanged the truth of God for the lie and worshiped and served something created instead of the creator who is blessed for the ages. Amen. For this reason, God gave them over. Paradidomi. To disgraceful passions. Their females exchanged the natural function for that which is contrary to nature. And the males, likewise, letting go of natural relations with females, became inflamed in their desire for one another. Males in males, doing shameful acts and receiving in themselves the punishment appropriate to their perversions. And so, just as they did not consider God worthy of being in their consciousness... God gave them over, paradidomy, to a worthless mind to do what is improper. They are filled to the brim with all kinds of unrighteousness, maliciousness, greed, vice. They are full of envy, murder, discord, treachery, malevolence. They are gossips, slanderers, God-forsaken, contrivers of harm, 
and disobedient to parents. They are senseless, untrustworthy, unloving, unmerciful. Though they know the requirement of God that those who practice such things are worthy of death, they not only do them, but they also heartily approve of those who practice them. All right. I love 2-1. But I, Paul, reply, therefore you... Phoebe would probably do a dramatic thing on this. You, O oh mere man, are without excuse. You're without excuse. In fact, every one of you who judges others like this are without excuse. For while you are judging another, you're condemning yourself since you, the self-appointed judge, do the same things. Paul's opponent now reacts in verse 2. Paul's opponent, the opponent. It's like a Shakespearean play. The opponent is next to speak. But we know that the judgment of God upon those who practice such things is based on the truth. Paul. But do you think, O oh man, that any one of you who judges those who practice these things, yet do the same things, that you will escape this wrathful judgment of God? Or do you despise the riches of God's beneficence and the clemency of his patience, being ignorant of the benevolence of God that's leading you to repentance? Paul now says this, and this is Paul saying this. Now listen, this is very tricky stuff. Paul says, now you, my opponent, say, This is not Paul, but the opponent says this, verse 5. On the basis of your stubbornness and unrepentant heart, you're storing up for yourself wrath for the day of wrath and the apocalypse of the righteous judgment of God, who will pay back each and every one on the basis of his works. Now, Psalm 62 is alluded here to, Psalm 62, 12. And this is a verse which highlights God's mercy, Elios in Greek. And it talks about God rewarding everyone according to his works. Paul's going to make this, everyone gets rewarded on the basis of Christ's works, the finished work on the cross. Then Paul says in verse 7, as you, my opponent, say, not Paul, I've seen this even recently attributed to Paul. As you, my opponents say, on the one hand, God gives the life of the coming age to those who are persevering in doing good, aim at glory and honor and immortality. Think about that. If that's the case, you have the life that's eternal if you do all that stuff. That's my comment. Verse 8. But on the other hand, to those who through selfish ambition and disobedience of the truth obey unrighteousness, there will be wrath and fury. Tribulation and distress upon every person's soul who does evil. This opponent, incidentally, suggests that tribulation is a sign of divine disfavor. Not like Paul. To the Jew first and also to the Greek. But verse 10, glory, honor, and peace to everyone who does good. Problem is, in Romans 3.10, there's none that do good, so. See, hints here. 
to the Jew first and also the Greek. For you say, rightly, Paul says, there is no favoritism with God. That's true. That's Deuteronomy 10, 17. But you also add, for as many as sin outside the law will also perish outside the law, and all who sin within the law will be judged by the law. For according to your version of the good news, it is not the hearers of the Torah who will be justified by God, but the doers of the law will be justified by the law. Now, Paul inserts a little statement here in verses 14 and 15. So Paul says, so what about the Gentiles who do not have Torah, who instinctively do what the Torah requires? They're a Torah themselves. They're a law themselves. They demonstrate that the code of conduct required by the Torah is written in their hearts. Their conscience bears witness among themselves, their thoughts sometimes accusing and sometimes defending them. Now in 16a, this is tricky too, 16a is a continuation from 2.13 where the, the opponent says, according to, where Paul says to the opponent, for according to your version of the good news, it's not the hearers of the Torah who will be justified by God, but the doers of the law will be justified by God. And then the opponent's view continued from verse 13 to 16a on the day when God judges the secrets of people. Paul inserts, though, in verse 16, well, according to my gospel, he does this through the Messiah, Jesus. Paul then continues. Now, Paul here goes into what we might call in modern sense a rant. He throws down because he's heard this all his career as a missionary. He's heard all this stuff and he hears what they say about it and they qualify themselves and they recommend themselves to each other and they send letters of recommendation that dear old Dr. So-and-so said this about me and I think they're good men and all the rest of it. Look at 17. This goes all the way, and I'm not going to pause through 28. Paul continues. Now, if you call yourself a Jew, I'm doing air quotes for those who are just listening to this on audio, and you rest on the law, and you boast in God, and you know his will, and you approve the things that are superior because you are well taught from the law. You are completely convinced that you are a guide to the blind, a light to those in darkness, those benighted Gentiles in their outer darkness, an instructor of the ignorant. That's per Isaiah 1, 2 to 4, Isaiah 42, 6 to 7, and 49, 6, which is attributed to Jesus Christ, not to them. Having in the Torah the embodiment and the knowledge of knowledge and truth, you think. Then you who teach others, do you not teach yourself? You who preach, do not steal, do you steal? You who say, do not commit adultery, you commit adultery. You who detest idols, rob temples. And there actually was a, an occasion where that happened. It became famous in A.D. 19 where certain preachers came into Rome 
and preached and then robbed the temples of the idol worshipers there and then made off with it out of town. You, I love this one in verse 23, boaster in the law. Paul's a lot like Jesus in Matthew 23 here, if you want to compare that. Through your blatant violation of the law, you dishonor God. For as it is written in Isaiah 52, 5, the name of God is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of you. For circumcision is indeed beneficial, as you say. But Paul adds, if it's part of a regimen in which you perfectly observe the whole Torah. But if you're a transgressor of the law in any point, then your circumcision becomes uncircumcision. You may as well still have your foreskin, is what he literally says to these teachers. And if that is so, then on the other hand, if the Gentile who you reduce to a foreskin, it's kind of like a modern word that I won't repeat that people call each other. If you then, on the other hand, if, the, if on the other hand, the Gentile who you reduce to a foreskin keeps the requirement of the law, will not this foreskin be considered as circumcision? And so the one who by natural condition is uncircumcised, but who fulfills the genuine requirement or the general requirement of Torah, of course, that's loving his neighbor, will judge you who through the observance of the mere external letter and circumcision violate the Torah. Verse 28, for I'm sure you'd agree now, Paul says, pulling his opponent close. One is not a Jew merely by an external observance of the letter of the Torah, nor is real circumcision something visible in the flesh. We could say the same for baptism, incidentally, but we won't, not right now. The opponent then shoots a shot at Paul right here in verse 29. On the contrary, he says, I know this like you do. The real Jew is now is one in the hidden part in the circ- and circumcision is of the heart. Meaning this opponent believed that there was something sanctifying in physical conversion that reached the heart. There's something in a sacrament that reaches the heart. Paul interjects, though, and this is the fateful phrase. He says, and I put this in bold italic, by the spirit, by the spirit and not the mere letter. That is, it is not the ritual act of circumcision that converts the heart, but the action of the spirit on the heart that constitutes the real Jew. The opponent continues whose praise comes not from men, but from God. So Paul interjected something again, very impolitely into the opponent's words. Chapter three, I don't know how far we'll get, but I'll quit pretty soon. Paul, this is Paul. And this is where it gets tricky. This, this is where I made the, the uh, martial arts analogy. Paul says, tell me then, What does the Jew have over the Gentile? Or what advantage is there in ritual circumcision at all? The opponent says, well, much in every way. First of all, they were entrusted with God's sayings. 
That is the divine oracles, the scriptures. Now, let me pause for a moment and recall the words of Jesus. You search the scriptures day and night, assiduously, industriously, and yet you don't come to me that you might have life. You suppose you'll find it by searching them, but you don't come to me. So Paul's in the same spirit here. So Paul says, again, verse 3, this is Paul. So what if some were unfaithful? Paul is going somewhere with this also. This I put in brackets. He's going all the way to Romans 11 with this one, where he shows that God has temporarily hardened a part of Israel for a universally salutary or saving reason. He says, so what if some were unfaithful? Does their unbelief, and this shoots an arrow to eleven thirty-one to 32, all are imprisoned in unbelief. Does their unbelief make the faithfulness of God ineffective? The opponent says, well, certainly not. Meganoito. God must be true. That is faithful. Now he alludes to Psalm 51.4 where David refers to God as being right and justified in passing sentence on him for his sin against Uriah the Hittite. Certainly not then. God must be faithful. Even if everyone is a liar. That's Psalm 16.11. David, when he wrote that, said he wrote it in a, on the occasion of a panic attack. He said to God, everybody's a liar. Everybody's a liar. As it is written, that you, God, may be justified by your words and overcome when you are judged. Paul then says, but if our wrongdoing demonstrates God's righteous justice, what should we conclude, you and me both? What should we conclude? That God is unjust to bring wrath on us? In parentheses, he then says, I'm speaking by a human analogy. Does the same in Romans 6.19. The opponent says, of course not. Then how could God judge the world? Paul says, verse 7, but if the truthfulness of God is amplified to his glory by my lie, that is the lie that the world has bought, in Romans 1.25. Why am I, Paul identifying himself with this world of people, why am I also being judged as a sinner? Verse 8, A, first half of the verse. Indeed, why not just say what we, my associates and I, are slanderously reported to be saying? I'll stop for a moment here. I can identify with this. We are slanderously reported as saying Go out and do evil and God will bless you. Go out and do evil and good may come. Grace is a license to sin. And that's all refuted emphatically starting in Romans 6, 1 all the way through Romans 6, 23. And then all the way to Romans 8, 39. Then all the way to Romans 16, 27. So look at what he says. But if the truthfulness of God is amplified to his glory by my lie... Why am I also being judged as a sinner? Indeed, why not just say what we, my associates and I, are slanderously reported to be saying that we should do evil things so that good will come? This is a slander that's effectively rebutted in Romans 6, 1 and the following, and we're not going to get there tonight. 8b, the opponent says, their judgment, that is the world's judgment by the wrath of God, is deserved. Uh Uh-oh, you just made a mistake. 
you just disagreed with William Money in The Unforgiven. Deserves got nothing to do with it. Verse 9. Paul then. What shall we conclude then? Now he's taken him in because they both, you see, they both were teachers of the Torah before they became Jewish Christian missionaries. So Paul says, what shall we conclude then? Are, are we, you and I as Jews, he uses the same reasoning with Peter in, in Galatians 2.16, you and I as Jews, are we better off That means better off than the world who are deserving of the wrathful judgment of God. Are we better off as Jews? The opponent says, well, not in every respect. You can see him backing up. He's like a politician in a debate, which is one of the greatest comedy shows on earth, if you want to see it in the next few nights. But anyways, Paul, because we... Let me just stop for a moment. Here's a politician's debate. What should I say that people will think that I should say so I can be up to date with what people are now feeling? I will say that then. Okay, that's a politician. Paul says this. Because we, both you and I, as those who proclaim the truth of the Hebrew scriptures as teachers of Torah, we've previously accused everyone. In our sermons, both Jews and Greeks, as being under the power of sin, capital S-I-N, a personified cosmic inimical power. And then he goes into this cascade of universal homartiology, universal sinfulness of mankind, as it is written. Quote, there is not a righteous person, not even one. There is not one who understands. There is not one who seeks God. And this is not just an indictment on the heathen, Romans 118 to 32 style either. All of them without exception have deviated at the same time and together they have become depraved, worthless. There's not one who does right by acting benevolently. Not even a single one. Their throat, quote, Their throat is an open grave. Their tongues are vehicles for deceit. The venom of asps is under their lips. Like the venom sack under the lips of the asp in Psalm 140 in verse 3. He also quotes Psalm 5.9. Then verse 14, their mouth is full of cursing and bitterness. Psalm 10.7. Their feet are swift to shed blood. Destruction and misery are wherever they go. And they have not come to know the path of peace. Isaiah 59, 7 to 8. There is no reverential awe of God before their eyes. Psalm 36, 1. Paul does a cascade of verses here. Then Paul continues after this scriptural demonstration of universal sinfulness on the part of all humankind. And he says this. Now it is obvious to us that whatever the Torah says, that's the law. The law pars pro toto. That means the law here he's referring to it as the Torah, the Nevi'im, the Ketuvim, including the Psalms. In other words, the Old Testament. It's obvious to us, whatever the Old Testament says, it speaks to those under the law, in the law, that is, Jews. The opponent then adds this, in order that every mouth may be stopped and the whole world should be shown to deserve God's wrathful judgment. Then he says this, and this is where Paul issues, this is where Paul pulls what I call an astonishing Pivot. 
Romans 3, 21 to 26, shoots into Romans 5 through 8, those chapters in which I call it all Paul. It's all Paul. And in the heart of that, we have the most spectacular horizon of universal salvation. Pausing again, when I teach doing and living theology, there is a warning there. If in your pure and true desire to know God, universal salvation is your end to know, then you have deviated from the path of knowing God, which is why I'm inserting theology here. Our pure desire is to know God, not universal salvation. But in knowing God, we see things that are spectacularly beyond our comprehension and greater than what we ever dreamed of. That's why I'm doing theology next, in the next increment. We can't leave this yet. The opponent then says, in order that every mouth may be stopped and the whole world should be shown to deserve God's wrathful judgment. For no human being will be. Now, this is a literal translation of Psalm 143.2, which is even better, the Septuagint translation, what we call the LXX, Psalm 142.2. For no human being will be, that's literally all flesh will not be, justified in his sight, that is in God's perspective. Here's where Paul pulls the unbelievably ingenious Only Holy Spirit inspired and enlightened genius. A pivot. Paul adds, he finishes the sentence. No living, no human being will be justified in his sight. And now the opponent would add, except by works of the law. But Paul interrupts all of a sudden and says, and interjects, by deeds prescribed by the law. No one living shall be justified in God's sight by deeds prescribed by the law. There's the end of your gospel, mister. In other words, the law here are the prescriptions listed by Moses in the Pentateuch. For through the law, and this Paul shockingly introduces, through the law comes only the consciousness of sin, not justification. Here's the pivot, 321 to 26. I'm going to read it without the scripture, without the references, although I might insert some scriptural references where Paul's coming from. Paul executes an astonishing pivot, anticipating a section in which is all Paul, namely Romans 5 through 8. So 321 to 26, and even on to 331, anticipates Romans 5 through 8. That's all Paul. Romans 321. But now... But you can almost hear this on a bullhorn. But now, apart from the commandments of the Torah, the saving righteousness of God has been manifested. That's phanerao, a synonym of apocalypto in Romans 1.17. It's the gospel. In the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed from the faithfulness of God to the faithfulness of Jesus, which takes in everybody. So, but now, apart from the Torah, the saving righteousness of God, which is fully attested, fully attested by the law and the prophets, the Old Testament, starting with Genesis 1.1, that is the righteousness of God through the faithfulness of Jesus Christ. 
bang, right there. That's bold and italic. Revealed to all who have faith. Meaning all who have faith see this. All who don't have faith are saved but don't see this. That's my comment. For there is no distinction. As my dad used to say, quoting the German, Max Nix makes no difference. Dad, I broke that window, but I didn't mean to. Max Nix, you're paying for it. <laughs> Actually, I broke eight, broke eight of them with a pellet gun with a Raleigh cigarette hanging out of my 11-year-old mouth. But there is no distinction. That means there's no difference. Max Nix, whether one's a Jew or a Gentile. Verse 23, for all sin. That means all are under the power of sin and complicit with it and can't do, my comment, a damn thing about it. I should illustrate that by having a Raleigh cigarette in my mouth and a pellet gun. Can't do a damn thing about it. That's not in Romans. That's that part. Look at, look at it. I love this. I love this. For there is no distinction for all sin. That's all under the power of sin and complicit with it. And fall hopelessly short of the glory of God. And are justified unconditionally by God's grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God displayed publicly as the mercy seat through the faithfulness that climaxed with his blood, his sacrificial death for the demonstration of God's righteousness, I say, who passed over the sins that were previously committed by his forbearing patience. Yes, for a demonstration of his saving righteousness and justice in the present time of crisis, the juncture of two ages, to show that he is perfectly just and the justifier of that one O-N-E, Jesus, by means of faithfulness, namely Jesus. The final word in this astonishing pivot, the only name given under heaven where mankind is saved, Jesus. That's the final word in the pivot. It's also the final word in everything. God who in these last days spoke to us by his son. God says Jesus in a way that men don't say it. Paul then, the opponent. Here's the opponent. He's just like every kind of Christian preacher today that doesn't understand this gospel. Where is boasting then? I mean, there's got to be something we boast about with regard to the salvation. Maybe an act of believing or an act of surrender or an act of commitment or an invitation of Jesus into our lives and a hope that we will change or a change of mind about our cigarettes or our Jack Daniels or our other forms of naughtiness. Where's boasting then? Paul says, shut out completely. The opponent, and this is just like the Pharisees to Jesus, on the authority of what kind of Torah, 
That means authoritative teaching. Are you saying that boasting is completely eliminated? A Torah about works? That is, boasting shut out by a law of works? Paul, second half of the verse, no, not at all. But by the Torah or the authoritative teaching regarding Messiah's faithfulness. Not just a law about faith. He's talking here about a Torah, an authorized teaching, which is the gospel, about Messiah's faithfulness. What cancels out, this is me again, can't help it. Can't help it. What kind of authoritative teaching takes away all boasting? The authoritative teaching that you're justified by the faithfulness of Jesus Christ. Period. Over and out. There goes boasting. For, he goes, no, not at all. But by the Torah of, or the authoritative teaching regarding Messiah's faithfulness. In other words, my gospel. That's what does it. For we, verse 28, my associates and I, Paul speaks on, bank on the fact that a person is justified by a faithfulness apart from the works of the law. This isn't faith versus works. He's talking about faithfulness of Jesus Christ versus works. Paul continues in verse 29. Or is God the God only of the Jews? Is he not also of the Gentiles? Paul answers it, I think, yes, of the Gentiles too. Verse 30. I love this verse. It's very important. Since indeed he is one God. This is a an incontrovertible verse. This is one the guy can't disagree with because it's the prime reference of Jewish thinking. The Lord our God is one Lord. Listen, Israel. Shema Israel. Adonai Eloheinu. Adonai Echad. The Lord our God is one. So Paul says, is he not also God of the Gentiles? Yes, of the Gentiles too, since indeed he is one God. Paul refers to the most dearly held passage of scripture by the Jews, and rightly so, the Shema, Hear, O Israel, God is one, Deuteronomy 6.4. He is the one who justifies the circumcision. That's Jews under the law. From the source of Messiah's faithfulness. See, you have to put Messiah's in a bracket because that's what he's referring to. Christ and him crucified, not you. He is the one, God, God of Gentiles and Jews who justifies the circumcision from the source of Messiah's faithfulness and the uncircumcision Gentiles without the law through the same aforementioned faithfulness Messiah's faithfulness. Here's the echo of Romans 117 and 322. The opponent says this. So then, I'm going to go all the way through 425. You have to leave at 8 because you have to watch your favorite soap opera or some idiot dating 25 girls. Go ahead, walk out. But this is going to be the, you say it's not even on tonight. How do you know? Ha I caught you. Now, 31, the opponent. So then, do we abolish the law through this? teaching of yours of justifying messianic faithfulness? Paul, of course not. 
We make the Torah stand tall as a testimony to God's saving righteousness and justice through Jesus Christ justifying faithfulness. We bring the law into its right focus by the faithfulness of Christ. Here's where Romans 4 comes in, and it's not what we usually think it is. Romans 4, I'll introduce it. Well, then, if the Torah stands tall as a testimony, the opponent starts right again in Romans 4.1. Well, then, if the Torah, as you say, stands tall as a testimony of Messiah's fidelity, then what shall we say about what Abraham, our forefather, according to the flesh or human lineage, has obtained? For since Abraham was justified by works, that's not Paul talking. Don't you know that? You know that by now, right? For since Abraham was justified by works, he has something to boast about. Don't tell me it's excluded. The opponent is ready to argue that Abraham was justified by circumcision, as seems to be the case from Genesis 17.10. Paul But this isn't how God sees it. God doesn't see Abraham justified by the works of the law. It's not how God sees it. But what does the scripture say? Abraham faithfully trusted God, and God considered this fidelity as rectitude. That is, as God approved livingness. Pulls the rabbit out of the hat, Genesis 15, 6, before 17, 10. Then Paul goes on to expound. Verse 4. Now the paycheck of the one who works is not calculated according to the principle of grace, but of obligation, or we could say deserving. But to the one who is not working, but trusting in the one who rectifies the ungodly, justifies the ungodly, his faithful trust, evoked as it is by God's word is considered by God as rectitude or as God-approved livingness. In the same way, David describes the blessedness of the man whom God considers to have rectitude, that is, whom God approves apart from works. Verse 7, quoting Psalm 32, 1-2, or 31, 1-2 in the LXX, how blessed are those whose lawless deeds are forgiven and sins whose sins are covered over. How blessed is the man whose sin the Lord in no way takes into account. Now, who is that man to whom God takes no, their sins not into account? Who is he? It's the whole world in 2 Corinthians 5.19. God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself, not imputing their trespasses to them. So you've got to make that connection. Paul continues in verse 9. Is this blessedness for the circumcision only? Continuing the thought of God is only a God of the Jews. Or is it also for the uncircumcision? Literally those whom you call the foreskin. For the scripture says he considered Abraham's trustful faith. To be rectitude. That is God approved living. But when was this account of divine approval made? When Abraham was in a state of circumcision or in a state of uncircumcision while he still had his foreskin? Let me answer for you, Paul says. The answer is not when he was in a state of circumcision, but when he was in a state of uncircumcision while he still had a foreskin. 
In fact, he receives circumcision as a seal of God's approval of the rectitude of his faithful trust while in the state of uncircumcision, when he still had a foreskin, in order to be the father of all the uncircumcised whose faithful trust is also recognized as rectitude, God-approved livingness. And at the same time, the father of the circumcised, not the merely circumcised, but those who also walk in the footsteps of the faith of their father Abraham while still uncircumcised. So then the promise to Abraham or to his seed The singular of sperma, seed, is Christ, according to Galatians 3.16. That he would inherit the universe was not through the law, but through the rectitude of faithfulness. For if those who observe the law are the heirs, then the faithfulness is empty. That's another way of saying Christ died for nothing. The faithfulness is empty. Then Christ died for nothing. That is, if those who observe the law are the heirs, then faithfulness is empty. And the promise is made ineffective. For the law produces anger in those who observe it with a view to gaining justification by it, and it provokes or challenges others to anger. You can see Galatians 5.26 where he says that explicitly. But where there is no law, there is no transgression. And that goes back to Romans 3.20. By the law comes only the consciousness of sin. It goes forward to Romans 5.13. Sin is revealed as transgression of the law. This is the reason that the promise is fulfilled as a result of Messiah's faithfulness. He used the word ekpistios as he did in Romans 1.17. So it's Christ's faithfulness. So that it may be according to grace in order to guarantee the benefit to all of Abraham's descendants, not only to those of the law, but also to those of the faithfulness of Abraham, who is the patriarch of us all, the father of us all. That means both circumcised Jews and uncircumcised Gentiles have Abraham as their patriarch, and so both are considered Israel. Now, here's where I insert a bold, and we're getting close to the end here. Here's where I insert a bold thesis of my own, and here it is. It encapsulates what's come up so far. The faithfulness that Abraham demonstrated before his circumcision is faith, the author and perfecter of which is Jesus. Abraham's faithfulness was authored by Jesus, participated in by Abraham, perfected by Jesus in his own perfect fidelity and obedience. Jesus' obedience was even to the extent of death by crucifixion, even to the extent of not being spared but freely given for us all, in Romans 8.32. The promises to all humankind in Abraham's seed illustrated and declared in Romans 5 as Paul looks back through Abraham to Adam and forward to one Jesus Christ whose faithfulness embodies all of humankind. I'll take you a year or two to ferret that out so you pastors can do that. Verse 17, just as it is written, he uses this 15 times in Romans, just as it is written, I've made you the father of many nations. This was said before, now, bracket, this was said before Abraham was circumcised. It was said in Genesis 15, 17, 5. Paul then goes on to say, he is the father in the sight of the God whom he trusted, the God who makes the dead alive and who calls into existence the things that do not exist. So Paul continues and concludes, for beyond hope, 
That means beyond the hope that's presented to our eyes empirically by sight. Beyond that, Abraham still hoped and believed. And we know that, bracketed, faith is the assurance of things hoped for despite sight. That he would become the father of many nations, Genesis 17, 5, according to this word that was spoken to him. According to this word that was spoken to him. The word spoken to him evoked his faith. So shall your seed be, Genesis 15, 5. He surveyed, Abraham did. He looked at carefully. If they had mirrors back then, this is what he did, or maybe in a pool of water. He surveyed his own body, already dead, being about 100 years old, and the deadness or necrosis of Sarah's womb. Without weakening in faithful trust, he not only did not doubt the promise of God, but being strengthened in faith in his own agona, his evidence test, he gave glory to God. Being fully convinced that what God had promised, he was able also to do. For this reason, his faithful trust was e- evaluated by God to be rectitude, what we call GAL, God-approved livingness. But the words it was accounted to him, quote, close quote, were not written for him alone, but also for us who believe in the one who raised Jesus our Lord from the dead. For us also, faithfulness will be accounted by God to be approved livingness. He, Jesus, go back to Romans 3.26, was handed over. Paradidome. He was handed over. He was handed over. He was handed over. Not the pagans. He was handed over for our offenses, the offenses of all. That is to take them away and was resurrected for our justification. Our justification is defined in Romans 5.18 as the justification of all of humankind for all time because he was justified He, Jesus, was justified for his faithful obedience unto death and brought to life for all in his resurrection. So I close with this thesis. We are justified by Jesus' faithful obedience. Moreover, we who believe in the one who raised Jesus from the dead have the privilege of participating in Jesus' faithfulness which God approves as rectitude, just as he did with Abraham, who had believed the unconditional promise of God that he would be the father of many nations. This principle, as we noted in the beginning of our Roman study, is nucleated or centered in 1 Timothy 4.10, in which God is declared to be the savior of all humankind, especially, although not exclusively, Of those who believe. Those who believe. In some meaningful measure therefore. Experience that salvation. Even now. While inhabiting mortal bodies. During the course of the clash of the ages. They are of the especially. Who believe category of saved. 
humankind. They are of the category of saved humanity who have come to some meaningful knowledge of the truth that is embodied in Jesus, the Savior of the world. That's the end of the second section of Romans. So it's going to take us a while to read the whole thing, and I don't know when we'll continue it, but i got a lot more work to do. So, Father, I pray that this will help our joy in Jesus' name, and we thank you for the privilege of